0: so quiet and nice, I feel so reluctant to talk. I'm having some interesting flashbacks today, reminding me I used to, in a former lifetime, I was a musician and played in, uh, in bands for much of my 20s. And we used to play in, mostly we played in dark, dingy kind of nightclubs, which I actually liked. Uh, and then once in a while we would play outside during the day. And I don't think I've ever given a Dharma talk outside in the sun during the day like this. I, I find it to be oddly pleasant. Um, usually it's, you know, in a hall, dim light, evening, after we've been grinding it out all day. But because of the weather and stuff, we chose to do the Dharma talk in the, even, in the, in the afternoon session because it will be more, uh, more able to pay attention and have a little bit more energy. This afternoon, I wanted to uh, share and to offer some reflections on this topic of mind and mindfulness. I'm sure you've come to realize now that in in this work, in this uh, meditation, mind cultivation, really the big territory that we're dealing with is our mind and kind of what a slippery, rubbery, ambiguous term that is. So I want to talk about that a little bit and then i'll talk uh, quite a bit about how the how the buddha breaks down the mind mindfulness or mind into these what are called foundations of mindfulness different ways of paying attention up until the last 150 years when people spoke about the mind they spoke about it in very different ways than we're used to now the mind was talked more it was more in art more in emotion more in things like uh, myth and imagery and legend and story, analogies, metaphors, similes, in ways that we would probably deem nowadays pretty unscientific. But yet at the same time, especially in the early Buddhist context, it was also described in very great precision at the same time very precise, very detailed, very uh, observable qualities. And in most of our lives, probably all of our lives, in the last 150 years, probably starting really with William James, uh, the mind has undergone a radical psychologization process in which now when we think of the mind, or we speak of the mind in modern terms, we mostly speak of it in terms of our psychological experience. Our thinking, how we feel, how we think about ourselves in the world. And that's, that's a very narrow, actually, perspective. When, when the mind gets reduced to just our psychological experience, then we miss out on a, a lot of the richness of what, what this term actually means, especially from an early Buddhist perspective. And as we're sitting, largely what you're experiencing moment to moment is your mind, and all, all of the troubles and all of the woes and all of the, the things that come with having this mind. And so if we reduce it to just a psychological experience and we don't give it its width, especially with tuning into it, our sensory experience, it can be it can be kind of troubling. The one definition, the Buddha is very reluctant to, He's almost blatantly kind of doesn't define this term, There is is one definition in modern scholarship that I like from a guy named Daniel Siegel. Some of you might know Dan Siegel. He wrote a book called Mindsight. He's a clinician. He's really kind of a brilliant guy. Uh, And his definition for the mind is an embodied, relational, emergent process that regulates the flow of energy and information. So the mind is embodied. It's in the body. So when we separate mind and body, we already got ourselves into a bit of trouble. The mind is in the body as much as it's in the psychological experience. It's emergent, meaning that it kind of comes and goes very rapidly. It's a relational process. It it relates to experience. It's a process, too. It's actually, I think, important to flag that what Siegel talks about and what early Buddhist tradition talks about is the mind is not a noun, but the mind is a verb. The mind is not a thing that exists but it is an event that occurs. And you've probably been noticing this reoccurring event. Right? And it regulates the flow of energy and information, and information the way we think, the way that we feel. And I think this is a nice, narrow, succinct definition, but also acknowledges that we're talking about something actually quite enormous. In the early Buddhist tradition, there's three terms that the Buddha speaks about when he's speaking in terms of what we would call mind. I just kind of want to kind of go through those a bit so we can get a sense. The first one, maybe the most obvious one, is this term vinyana, which translates as consciousness, which is a good translation, consciousness. Consciousness is more the analytical side of the mind. When the Buddha speaks of consciousness or vinyana, he's almost always talking about sense sense doors and their objects. So he talks of hearing consciousness, seeing consciousness. Tasting consciousness, feeling consciousness, smelling consciousness, thinking consciousness. And so the basic premise is a phenomenological premise, which is that there's a three kind of three things that happen, and that we have an organ and we have an object. So when an organ and an object relate to each other, hearing arises. Now, if you didn't have ears, you wouldn't hear the bell, and if I didn't hear the bell, you wouldn't hear the bell. It's not very profound or very mystical or very hard to acknowledge. But when he's talking about consciousness, he's just talking about that which is known. So there's a knowing capacity we would call in modern scholarship epistemology, the mind knows things. It's pretty easy to know that that's the sound of a bell because you've recognized it, you've heard it many times. And what we know or what we think we know is not always true or accurate or helpful. So we have to be very weary of what we think that we know, and, and particularly that of the the mind door, the, the thinking process. That I don't know about you, but for much of my life, and even up till this current moment, I hate to admit, uh, I believe a lot of the information my mind gives me about particular moments that I find myself in. I'm like, well, if you say so. And and a lot of the work that we have to do is to say, well, maybe not, right. So consciousness is, is one, of, one of the five aggregates. It's what's being known right now. And so we come to know, there's a lot of value in coming to know sensory experience, knowing sounds as sounds, sensations as sensations, knowing that there's a lot going on, a lot more going on than what's going on in your, just, your little narrow psychological experience, which is very subjective, which is very narrow, which is very self-referential. Right? And if that's all we have, to work with, we're going to find that we get ourselves in lots of trouble. That's a really constricted way. Another term that's used is called mano or manas, which means something like mentality. It's also part of the word attention, you know, this word attention, manasakaro, is whatever I pay attention to, that's what I'm making in the mind. And if I look over there, I see a tree. If I look over here, I see grass. So whatever I pay attention to, that's what the mind makes. Uh, Oftentimes, just mentality. It's what organizes the thing and tells you what's what. Tells you that's a bird, that's a sound, that's a bird, that's a sight, that's a tree. Nothing very profound going on. But you can watch this stuff. The thing about it is you can see and you can start to expand your awareness to, to not overlook the obvious things that we typically overlook. The third term, and probably the most profound, which I'll spend some time unpacking a little bit, uh, is this term chitta which I think is a very important word. Um, chitta. very hard to translate, usually translated as heart-mind, mind mind or heart-mind. The cognitive, we would probably call it the cognitive-emotional process. The process of intellection, the process of affect, the process of emotion, all of it. So chitta in a Buddhist context doesn't delineate, even though we in Western thinking, we can draw lines between this is my thinking and this is my emotions, and we like to chop things up in little categories. In the early Buddhist tradition, this word citta, it doesn't delineate these things. So there's an effective quality to it, it's resonant, the, the aspect of chitta of the mind is what feels, it feels sad, it gets disappointed, it gets upset, it gets hurt, it gets wounded. It has an effective nature to it. It's also generative. It also can generate uh, ideas and thoughts and memories and judgments and all those kinds of things. And when he talks about consciousness, so what's the difference between consciousness and chitta, the Buddha says that consciousness is to be known or to be fully known, if consciousness is something that we need, we want to be able to delineate, we want to be able to just know. This is a sound, this is a thought. This is a past thought. this is a future thought. Uh, chitta is actually to be cultivated. So a lot of what we're doing here is we're really cultivating chitta in various aspects of the chitta, the chitta of awareness, of openness, of expansiveness, of adaptability, the chitta of kindness, the chitta of caring, of gratitude, of understanding. There's lots of different qualities that we can cultivate. So that's what a lot of what's being done here. And this term citta vimutti, vimutti, the term for liberation is what we liberate ourselves in Buddhist practice, we oftentimes talk about liberation. Citta is what gets liberated. That's the liberative quality. We want to liberate our citta from its destructive side, from falling into uh, despair, anger, hatred, fear, apathy, those kinds of things. We really want to not let ourselves collapse into that. The other thing I think that's also really important to flag, um, I wish I could think of a better word for it, is, the, is that a lot of the troubles that we think we have are, are aspects of chitta, and it's not adventitious, meaning that our troubles are not innate. So the chitta doesn't have this innate problem that it's all created, right? The things that we struggle with, so that there's, I think this is important to realize that from an opacity of kind of innate, and its own nature, it doesn't have, it didn't come with a troublemaking aspect to it. Right? That's us, or the world, or the combination of the two. Right? So in its innate sense, it's, uh, there's some terms that they use that I'll kind of go over. So to cultivate, we want to grow this citta, we want to develop this citta, we want to stabilize this citta, uh, and ultimately we want to we cultivate it into qualities that we have chosen for ourselves, our qualities that we want to bring into being—mindfulness, I mean, for example, awareness, obvious ones, kindness, generosity, understanding, caring, gratitude—all these, you know, these things that we that we easily would look at the list of and say, "Yeah, those are the things I would like to—I'd like to be more like that." Uh, and so that's good that we recognize these things. That we—not everybody's trying to do this. Let's just be clear. You know, we don't live in a world where people wake up every day and go, gee, how can I be more generous and how can I be more kind and more understanding? That's not status quo. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we forget that as practitioners, for those of us who have chosen to really create positive change in the world, that we really, a lot of times we don't give ourselves credit or we don't, we don't factor in our sila or our goodness. of Like, hey, like I'm actually trying. <laughs> not everybody's trying. <laughs> right? Clearly. <laughs> and so we can a lot of times overlook that and not really factor that in. And I think that that is a, a misunderstanding that we can easily fall into. And I think a lot of times that's because we feel like uh, the, the work of Dharma is just about, uh, we so measure our, our growth by kind of just the meditation. How often do I sit? What happens when I sit? Which is really a, a really kind of unenlightened measuring stick so when we reduce the practice of dharma to just this meditation practice we miss out on the width. and part of that is we miss out on this not acknowledging our commitment to being good to attempting or at least trying to bring some positive change into, into the world right so that, that's all chitta. it's all citta we, we could say is more of a behavioral thing It's more of a process, it's a very verb, it's something that we do, that we cultivate. And the other thing to remember, there's a couple things about it that are interesting, that come right from the canon, is we have to realize that the citta is not necessarily nice. When we look at later schools of Buddhism, sometimes we think of the word citta, we associate it with a positive quality. Uh, because of Mahana, Mahayana Buddhism, they talk about bodhicitta, awakened heart-mind, that a lot of times we can make this assumption, and I didn't figure that citta was like the good thing. The citta is not necessarily nice. The citta can be, um, it's very capricious or fickle. It can turn on a dime. It can turn on you. I have this every evening around 9 o'clock when I'm like, you know, Thinking about today, how I'm like, I really should get up early tomorrow and exercise, and maybe I'll eat some healthier food tomorrow. And then the chitta will say that, and then it will like, say, Yeah, but I'm pretty sure there's some golden grams of Captain Crunch in the pantry. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And then I have the golden grams of the Captain Crunch, and then the chitta says, I, I really wouldn't have done that if I was you. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like all these voices and characters using the same microphone and the same voice. And I'm just like, hey, I, I don't, we don't know which one. So it, it really turned, as Joseph Goldstein likes to say, the mind has no pride. <laughs> it will tell you to do the foolish thing and then go, I oh, was pretty foolish. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen this? <laughs> <But>. <laughs> it's understood to be uh, luminous and radiant. It can, it can expand, it can be big. Uh, which is a lot of what we do here with this natural awareness. trying to get it to expand. It can also be very contracted. It uh, can be scared. Um, it can be pleased with itself. It can be displeased with itself. It's a process that is dynamic, that is fluid, and that is, again, happening so fast that the Buddha doesn't actually even give an analogy for how fast it moves. And you've probably noticed this today trying to just keep up with it. It's just like the monkey mind, it just, it just, it goes, it's the channel surfing of the mind is just like, it's got 14 remotes. You know, and it's just really, so it's good to know that this is outlined. This is to be expected. This is sort of its nature. So we try to stabilize it. We try to bring it into some kind of unification as best we can. So when we can stabilize that, we can kind of be more content and feel into it. And a lot of it is what we're, the mess in here, a lot of that is this chitta, heart-mind. So there's the emotional side of it, the cognitive side of it. And ultimately what the chitta needs and wants is it wants to be related to. So we find that a lot of times in the privacy of our own mind, we can feel as if there's lots of arguments happening. We don't always relate to our mind or to our heart or to our chitta very skillfully. There can be finger pointing, there can be blaming, there can be how coming, and why, and if only. And, and we can kind of get really in this kind of argumentative uh, experience with ourselves, with our own minds, with our past, with our future, with what could have been if only. You know this? All right, so, <laughs> that, so when it's, it, that, that the relationship they're relating to is usually, there's tension or there's there's a misunderstanding or there's a kind of blaming. And so ultimately what the citta wants is to be related to in a way that's that's understanding and kind. Uh, And so we would use the word constructive in emotional intelligence, which I think is a good word, is we want to have a constructive relationship with the mind rather than a destructive relationship, right? And so we can look at there are aspects of our mind that are clearly destructive and we want to try to overcome those. And we, we see aspects of our mind that are constructive or wholesome. We want to cultivate those. And largely, that's kind of it. That's really, again, the, really, the linchpin of Buddhist meditation is to try, to try to let go of what's destructive and try to cultivate what's constructive and, and try to, as the Buddha says, a tree that leans to the west will fall to the west. A tree that leans to the east will fall to the east. So which way is the chitta leaning? Mm. Right? And what we're doing here constantly is we're just <laughs> trying to keep pushing it no, over here. You might have noticed. No, go over here, over here, over here. My son's obsessed with um, space and NASA and stuff, so we've been watching this show on HBO. I forget what it's called, but it's really good. And they say that that when they, when they launch the space shuttle to the moon, it's off course 99% of the time. But it still makes it there. <laughs> so the mind is like kind of off course 99% of the time, you might have noticed. And there's that constant, we have to just keep making that moment-to-moment little adjustment, right? And then it starts to incline. It starts to kind of get its own trajectory. And Some of us have been doing this for a while. You've seen this. And so that's the, the slow grind of the work, right? And you might have noticed that just in these last several hours, it's a little bit more easy. Maybe your, your adjustments are a little bit more subtle. They're not, they don't feel so aggressive. They might even feel more natural at times. And so we have this term, the mind, which is really what we want to have in a really succinct way, is, is, is cultivation, mind cultivation, mindfulness is really about learning how to have an intelligent relationship to our experience, right. which, you know, is, is not always easy to do, but I think that's the way to think about it, is we want to have an intelligent relationship. And so we might say that uh, what we're experiencing is the mind. So we would even maybe say that mind and experience are kind of synonyms. And experience is a good word because it implies really everything. What's happening within my experience. I use this word a lot. I think it's a good word. So we're experiencing the mind. Sometimes we're resonating with the mind and its behavior. Sometimes it's we're resonating, we're feeling into what's going on right now. And sometimes we're generating and we kind of see that there's, there's, there's an affective intelligence that we might call an emotional intelligence. We know how we're feeling. And a lot of times if we don't like how we're feeling, we react to that. And that's usually not, not, not so intelligent, that's more reactive. I don't want to feel like this. I want to have this feeling. I don't want to have this memory. I don't want to relive this old experience again here. So the, we're not relating to it in a way that's helping so much. And then we see this other word. So, what, so, so if we have this word mind and we have this other word mindfulness, which is the word that we know so much about, um, what's, what's going on there? What is mindfulness? How is it different? How is it the same? This word mindfulness is interesting because... Um, To just break it down, so so when we talk about mindfulness as a practice, the word mind, the, we don't have any of the words I just mentioned. We have this other word, sati, uh, which means something like remember to recognize. Right? It's a really difficult word to translate. Um, it has a, a recognition quality uh, to recognize and, and to essentially to recognize what's wholesome and cultivate it, and to recognize what's unwholesome and let it go. That's a big part of it, the recognition aspect of it. Uh, to remember. Uh, and not memory like I remember where I lived when I was five, but just the, 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 the cognitive function of remembering. And one of the discourses in the early, earlier side of the canon, the Buddha, when he talks about mindfulness, he says the thing that always kind of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up a little bit because it sounded kind of spooky and I didn't know what he meant. But oftentimes you'll hear, to remember that which has been said and done long ago. I was like, well, what is, what is that? What was said and done long ago that I need to remember? Right. And you don't see that. You only see that in very, very only early, early sections of the canon as, as you progress forward. Like, that's not even in the Satipatthana. It's in older versions of it. And I think what that is trying to get us to do is to remember our purpose, remember our sense of integrity, remember why are we even, why would we even come to a place like this and do this kind of work, right. to remember the Dharma, to remember the teachings, to remember a kind of ancient wisdom that has been passed down for two and a half thousand millennia now. Right? And I think that what happens is we, we, we forget. So this, we have Samasati in, in the Eightfold Path, which is usually translated as right mindfulness. Michasati. It's not really wrong mindfulness. It's not really right and wrong. It's just either I'm remembering or, or I'm forgetting. And I feel like much of the time, as I said earlier today, I still am astounded by how much I forget that which has been said and done long ago. I forget why I'm here. I forget what matters to me most. I forget uh, sometimes my my sense of value, my sense of purpose, because I I just get caught up in, in my day. I get caught up in the things of my life that aren't going well and aren't going the way that I thought they were going to go, and I get caught up in fear around finances or family, and I get caught up and I kind of get so reactive in the current conditions that I find myself in that I forget all this the 30 years of data I have that has all all this other information in there that I just ignore or I don't factor in. It's so easy to forget that. And we don't live in a culture or society, generally speaking, where you have a lot of external reference points that are going to remind you of that. Maybe you have a partner or a friend or a couple Dharma friends who might at times point that out to you. Other than that, forget it. There is no CNN report that's going to get you to remember to recognize that, which has been said and done long ago. (laughs) They're going to try to get you to react to the current conditions. So that, 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 just that alone makes mindfulness a much more dynamic thing to me. And so we also look, so we look at mind here is to remember, to recognize. It's a, it's a very, mindfulness is very active. Here mindfulness is not really so much a, a noun, it's, it's a verb, it's a, it's a doing, it's a remembering, it's a recognizing. It's a, it's a, really what I think it means is to bear in mind. In each moment, do I bear in mind always my sense of integrity? Do I bear in mind my sense of worth? Do I bear in mind my commitment and my willingness to try to create positive change in the world? Do I bear in mind that things change? No, I don't bear these things in mind much of the time. It's hard. It's hard to remember to recognize that which is most important to us, which doesn't make any sense. But it's true, we find that it's so hard. And so then we have this other, we have this, what's called in English, some of you probably know, a suffix, which is ness, N-E-S-S, mindfulness. (coughs) And typically the role of this this suffix, N-E-S, is to take uh, uh, an adjective and turn it into a noun. So like we have kind, we say somebody's kind, but we have kindness. We have loneliness. We have worthiness. We have tiredness. Right? We have all these ness words. And what that does is it takes a noun and turns it, uh, it takes a verb and turns it into a noun or turns it into, the role of this term ness is to turn something into a quality or a state or a condition. So mindfulness is a quality or a state of, or a condition of bearing these things in mind, remembering to recognize. Which is weird because in, in, in it's only in this one word in the English language do we see that it's kind of, taking a noun and switching it into a verb. It never does that. It's always, you know, we have this, it's a state or a quality. Kindness is a state, quality of being kind. Loneliness is a state or a quality of being lonely. Mindfulness is a state or a quality of not being mind, but uh, it's really kind of a... an active thing. So here we would think mindfulness is a state, actually. Mindfulness oftentimes is taught in three ways that that it's a practice, which is what we're practicing. Uh, It's a state, uh, which is something that we... It's actually kind of a rare moment, you might have noticed. Mindfulness is not happening all of the time. I think it's actually a lot more rare than we think. I think much of my day, mindfulness is not there. It's kind of rare. It also can be thought of as a trait, which I think is the long-term goal, is we want mindfulness to have a habituated quality to it where we just, which I start to notice that too. That's one thing where I, the practice, I trust to practice over these years is a lot of times mindfulness will just be operating on its own and I can be like, oh my God, it's here. God, I hope it stays for a while so I can get through the next hour. But here we want to think about what it is. It's actually a state. It's a quality of being. It's, it's a, it's a quality of being fully attuned, to be present, to be at ease. In the Buddhist psychology, in the Abhidharma, mindfulness is, and I don't know if this is true, there's lots of debate on this, but I choose to believe the Abhidharma thinkers that mindfulness is called a beautiful mental factor. Mindfulness is always wholesome. Mindfulness knows, what's to, it knows what to do, it knows what's going on, it knows how to respond, it knows how to to be in the current context of the situation in a way that doesn't create harm, which I think even makes it, again, a bit more rare. It's a beautiful mental factor. And so then I think the most important important word, the most important part of mindfulness is not mind or nest, but what is its full business? You, know, you might think to yourself, yeah, well, my mind's already full, so I don't need the mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I want, Because we, we do, we think, we, we think a lot of times in meditation, I think one of the big traps is we think... People say this to me all the time, they're like, when I tell them I teach meditation, people, oh, I've heard so many times, I wish I had a dollar how many times people have said it to me. It's like, oh my God, I could never meditate, I could never clear my mind. I'm like, what is clearing your mind That has nothing to do with it. You know? And so the, the mind, the moment... We have to remember it's full. What we really want to have is we want to have a full life. We want to have a full dynamic. We want to be fully present for our experience. the, the, The moment includes all of the past and it includes everything actually. It's a full, full moment, which is why I don't like this word moment actually because I've yet to find it in 30 some odd years because it's moving so quickly. So it's kind of, uh, it, it, am I fully present? And the way that he lays that out is what's known as the four foundations of mindfulness. So I'll talk a little bit about those because I think can be helpful to get a sense of how that works. So the teachings of mindfulness are in a discourse called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is uh, in many ways the Bible of the insight meditation world. Um, it's only four or five pages. Uh, it's a pretty short discourse, but it really it, what it entails is a really kind of a great analysis of what the fullness of mind could actually look like mm. to be in the fullness of experience. And the Buddha kind of lays them out in these four foundations, these four kind of domains or territories, or I would even say neighborhoods of the mind that we basically haven't traveled down. Probably the neighborhood of your mind that you're most familiar with is the neighborhood of thinking and cognition. I suspect you spend quite a few hours of the day there. And we sort of have to. So sati means to remember tanha, sati patana, tana means like a ground or a foundation. It's usually translated as foundation, but it's really better trend. It's really how, how am I ground, what am I grounding the mind in? Because again, if the chitta needs to be stabilized and can't be running all over the place all of the time. We need to have it grounded. And so there's a progression, a natural progression that the Buddha offers us on how we can actually do that. And he, he, he probably obviously starts with the body. And he says we need to ground our mindfulness, our awareness in our body. And so I think even a better term, the term for body is kaya, I think a better term would be our somatic experience. There's actually a brilliant trauma therapy intervention called somatic experience that was developed by Peter Levine, some of you might be familiar with. And it's really, it's not just about the body and like, you know, just my body, but it's about the body. It's about our respiratory system, our breathing system. It's about, largely, it's about our nervous system, which is an embodied process, which we need to regulate. It's about our five senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, sound, those are thematic properties. Those are organs. But we're usually not hearing, we're usually caught up in what we're hearing and telling ourselves about what we're hearing and I don't wanna be hearing this and I gotta to listen to this noise, I don't wanna to listen to this noise. We're usually reacting to our sensory experience. Right? And it's actually pretty hard, if you've noticed today, to just, to just sit here and just receive sound without naming it or getting caught up in it or being like, is that a fly? I don't know how many flies there are here. I don't really see any mosquitoes. That's probably good. You know, you're just like, you're gone. What happened? Sound arose and gone. So there's a lot of instructions around mindfulness of breathing, uh, 32 anatomical parts of the body, mindfulness in daily activities, sati sampajano, to be aware of, that's why we ask you to be fully present when you walk from here to the dining hall, when you walk to your uh, sleeping quarters, when you, when you wash your dish, to be mindfulness, satisapajano, is to be, to be immersed in the experience that you're having rather than thinking about, fantasizing about, worrying about some other experience that you might, could be, should be having later on. So there's an immersive quality to it to really be inside the body experience. And so he starts with that. We, we do body scans, we, we listen to sounds. A, a lot of what we cultivate here is a foundation of mind, of awareness that's rooted in the body, that we typically, unless the body like, is, is in pain or some degree of pleasure, we kind of just ignore our bodies. Right? So there's also a somatic intelligence that we can start to feel into of finding ease and comfort in the body. And a lot of that is meta of trying to, a lot of us, we don't, we don't like our bodies. We don't like the size of our bodies. We don't like the shape of our bodies. We don't like the gender of our bodies. We don't like the age of our bodies. I don't know about you, but a lot of times it's just like, I'm like, I, everything would be fine if I could just get out of this body. Right? That's the problem is the body. So we actually, a lot of times, have a kind of destructive relationship and you're stuck. If you're stuck anywhere, you are stuck in that body. You are not getting out. Right? It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too this, it's like so a lot of our resistance and a lot of our kind of issues are just really reacting to the body. And it's discomfort, it's hunger, and all of the different we don't think about that so much. But if you really think about it, I mean 30% of your day is like dealing with your body. First of all, it's got to sleep for seven or eight or hour, hours. You got to feed it. You got to clean it. You got to clothe it. You got to exercise it. It's just like, you know, how, you know, 30% of your day is just dealing with the vehicle of the body. Right? And how much do we actually participate in that process? Or we just feel like it's like a chore. Right? So there's so much to be learn and the Buddha really puts this as the first foundation of something that he really is trying to get us to pay more attention to and with that and then and the foundations expand the next one which is a huge idea in Buddhist thought is, is Vedana or feeling tone uh, with, with, that, with the body comes valence comes uh, affective intelligence that we are affected, we are so sensitive all of our sensory experience has a tone or a quality of, of of pleasure, pleasure and pain, the pleasure-pain dichotomy, and everything in the middle. Neither pleasure, pain, right? And that's really where we we get very reactive, is because we, you know, we like pleasant and we want more of it, and we dislike unpleasant and we want to get rid of it. And largely, as we move through the world, as we move through life, that's our primary reactive pattern. Is trying to get rid of what we don't want and trying to acquire what we want. And We live in a culture and a society where happiness is measured by, you know, the goal of life is to get the things you want and to avoid the things that you don't want. That's the general attitude. Pretty much can't be done. And even those few people who have accomplished this are, seem to be fairly miserable anyway. So the strategy is bogus. But we, 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 we are so dictated by it that we don't necessarily be aware of. So the Buddha is trying to to be mindful, be aware, remember to recognize that your how you're feeling, sensory feelings are going to dictate behavior. Right? And can we have metta? Or can we really have equanimity with feeling, where things can be? We can be. We can at. We actually can be at peace, and we can be content. Whilst we're experiencing unpleasant experience and discomfort. We can do that. You can do that. It's possible. Right? Again, that's something that needs to be cultivated, that needs to be learned. I have a four-year-old, and he hates unpleasant. <laughs> Anything unpleasant arises in his experience, and he's just like, goes, he, he gets mad, he reacts, he's just like, this should not be should not be happening right now. It's like the dharma. In little kids, the dharma is so obvious. I'm like, he hates unpleasant. I didn't teach it to him. <laughs> All by himself, he just has declared <laughs> that things are not going his way, anything unpleasant needs to stop now, and I need to be the one to make it stop. <laughs> and sometimes I'm the source of it, and then it gets really awkward. My other son, Emmett, who's 10 now, one time I said to me, he's like, he's like I wouldn't have... He goes, if mom would just give me what I want, like, we wouldn't have any problems. He's like, on the way to school one day. He's like, I'm just saying. If you want things to be easier around the house for everybody, mom should just give me what I want. We could just eliminate all of this unnecessary suffering. And what am I going to say? I'm like, yeah, you make a good point. I'm like, that is true, actually. So it's like we're just like so wired for this. It's like it's funny, right? It's funny. You know? It's like of the feelings, pleasant is my favorite one. Like that breeze feels really, really good. And two hours ago, the sun felt really unpleasant. It's just like, and so this Vedana experience, this feeling is a lot of times what we're trying to do in mindfulness is to not let that dictate where the citta goes. Which, ironically, uh, and interestingly enough, the next foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind, as it's classically called, is, is the Pali term is citta. So in the Satipaṭṭhāna, the Buddha says, he wants us to be aware, to remember, to recognize, to, to be uh, aware of, of what's going on in the citta, the mental state, the mental behavior. And I think largely what that is, is that it's, in the, it's a mental state, it's a mental attitude, and it has a very, very much the citta has a behavioral component to it the chitta is wanting this the chitta is not wanting that the chitta is envious of this the chitta is jealous of that the chitta feels unworthy about this the chitta feels ashamed about that so it's always a kind of behavioral thing that we start to notice and we can kind of we can be aware of that and so when when, when we're looking at kind of the liberation process if you look at the four noble truths and the four foundations of mindfulness the third noble truth is about liberation if you stand them next to each other, all four line up. So we're really trying to liberate the chitta, And one of the best ways to do that is to be more familiar and more in into the body and the feelings. Because if we can be cool, if we can be non-reactive, if we can be in the body and be in our feeling system with a little bit more equanimity and a little bit more ease, the chitta is less likely to react. And so the three that uh, Buddha singles out He's trying to get us to be aware of presence and absence of things. And so the ones you've probably heard these many times, what are classically known as greed, hatred, and delusion, um, is trying to notice the presence and absence of these things. And greed is a strong word, but it's everything from full-on clinging to this needs to happen now, five minutes ago, or just to kind of like, you know, it'd be kind of nice if uh, it's a little warmer out here. So it starts with that slight, slight wanting, just a little bit more pleasure, wanting, you know, like, you know, I'm one of those people who will walk a half a mile to put a little bit more salt on my eggs just because they'd be better if they had a little more salt on them, right? And that's, so it's, uh, it, in the degrees of it, it's, again, it's not bad or wrong, but it can get very extreme very, very quickly. So uh, greed and hatred is if, if sort of uh, wanting this and not wanting that which puts us back into the pleasure-pain system. And so also he's trying to say, and people miss out on this, is he wants us also to be aware when they're absent. I mean, how often have you ever had to thought to yourself, wow, I'm not angry right now. So nice <laughs> to not be angry. Right? We don't do that so much. Maybe you do, I don't. So nice to... So we don't actually appreciate... The absence of difficulty, the absence of, of these kind of intoxicants, the absence of these destructive things, which we miss out on a huge part of our lives. Where we're like, oh, wow. It's, it's kind of nice not to be clinging or craving or wanting something. It's nice just to kind of sit here and be content. Right? So we, we forget that there's a, there's a lot of the of the practice of mindfulness is to be aware of the absence of these things as much as the presence of them. And again, we have to get out of this thinking that like greed, hatred, and delusion are bad or wrong and I need to get rid of them, but really just assessing and recognizing that they're, they're, they get in the way. Right. And they never follow through with the promise. <laughs> How many times have you had the thought, man, if I could just get this, I'd be so happy. <laughs> Just this one thing I said, I'm like, I'll never ask for anything again. <laughs> just give me this job. Just give me this relationship. Just, uh, and you get it, and you're like, eh. <laughs> All right, one more. I just want one more. How many wishes do I get? Right. So they, again, they're, 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 they're kind of built into that. And I think about it. I don't think delusion is the right word. I think it's more like confusion. We're just confused. The human experience is largely a confused experience. And a lot of what confuses us is we've, we look at our lives and we look at, well, I've gotten a lot of the things that I've wanted and I've avoided a lot of the things that I didn't want and that actually hasn't panned out yet. Maybe I need a new metric. And so in that third foundation of mindfulness, so that's the word is mindfulness of chitta, just to try to be aware of what is going on in the attitude of the mind, what is going on in the kind of way that I'm relating to myself or my experience. Right. And that, and when you when you can recognize, oh, gee, I'm really wanting this thing, and I can be free from it, you'll notice there's, there's these little moments of liberation that we get, and we should we we want to learn how to track those. Right. We want to learn how to track these. There's all these little. You probably all of you have probably had dozens of them today little victories, I call them, where you're like, you were struggling about something or you were squirming in the body or you were, whatever you were doing, I'm sure you were doing plenty of it, and you kind of, you, something happens and you have more acceptance or you have more ease or you make a kind of psychological adjustment to the experience and you're like, oh, that's, okay, cool. Liberation is not epic. I think that we have to also realize that what the Buddha is talking about is very an ordinary thing. It's not this big epic breakthrough into something it's just a kind of a way of, of relating to our experience with more intelligence Saying, okay i can i can i can make these subtle adjustments and the good thing about dharma practice is like a little bit of mindfulness is a lot if you have no mindfulness and you get like a tiny little bit it's a lot right same with metta if you if you have an unkindness or kind of a meanness, and you get a little tiny bit of kindness towards yourself, that is a lot. And so subtlety is the name of the game around here. That a little bit is a lot. A little bit of ease in the mind is a lot. A little bit of settling the body is a lot. And there's an accumulative effect that builds up over the days. We start to have that more stabilized. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is probably um, one of the most kind of undertaught and misunderstood aspects of the Satipatthana. It's translated as mindfulness of dhammas, which is a really hard word to translate. Dhamma meaning something like um, activities of mind. We could say Uh, frames of reference. So different. We can frame up in a Gestalt sense. We can kind of frame the moment up. But also I think in, in the most basic sense, I think what it means is the Dharma means the teachings, so mindfulness of the teachings. Right. And so uh, in, in a kind of simple way, in, in many ways and I think about it in the most practical sense in a kind of everyday language, is it's kind of a way of re, reframing the moment, a cognitive reframe. So a lot of times it's like we're looking at our experience through these kinds of frames, and one of the frames that we look at, and we'll talk about this, we'll probably do a whole talk on this at some point, is we, we get caught up in what are called hindrances, uh, craving and aversion, which I've talked a lot about. But we see that a lot of times we're looking at the moment through this very small frame. And I want this and I don't want that, which makes me restless, which makes me doubt, which kind of, uh, these hindrances, what they do is they block or they obscure or they're actually in the way of the liberated mind. And so they can be very difficult to work with because what we're talking about here is a whole taxonomy-rich list of kind of unproductive mental habits that you've developed, right? And that's a big territory. So we have to realize that this is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. We're not being encouraged to necessarily start with this. So the system is designed for us to really, and the retreat process is designed for us to really kind of get down more into that body, get more into this simple awareness, become more aware of the feelings, become more aware of the mental states. And if we can kind of cool that down, then we can begin to work with that dynamic process of kind of mental events, thinking, habit patterns of the mind, you know, criticizing, judging, blaming, if onlying, what ifing, all of these kinds of things that they just we get we get we get swept up into these kind of thought loops, habits. And so when we we think about the the goal of the task, if you will, of the Fourth Foundation, again, it always comes back to these things is to to, uh, overcome these hindrances and to develop these awakening factors, which we'll talk more about in the week to come. But the first awakening factor is mindfulness. So we're always trying to remember to recognize the present moment experience. And so what helps is by... When we can remember to recognize that we've been thinking and we're caught up we can open back up to the sound we can come back into the body we can feel the breeze and when you're back the good thing is it's not five miles into the woods and five miles out of the woods as soon as you're back you're back when you're 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 right back just right back it's great no matter how far out into the mind you went when you come back you're back Mm -hmm. and i think that i like that that feels i feel like we have that's one of the few leg ups that we have (laughs) When you're back, you're back. Right? And so we're kind of, we, we want to practice that kind of coming back and coming back. And so mindfulness, the fullness of mind is a mind that is, that is always bearing these things in mind. That's, that's clocking and tracking the body, the body movements, the body hunger, the tired body, the pain body, the unpleasantness of the pain body and not trying to react to these things. Right, and it's taught us the direct path to liberation, the teachings of Satipatthana. And there's, as, as you probably are all aware, this mindfulness shows up everywhere in our culture. There's everything from what we're doing here, which is to me very traditional, very early Buddhist ideas of mindfulness, all the way up into your MBSRs and all of your MBIs that we see, mindfulness based everything now. Right? Because there, there has been a recognition. Uh, especially in the, in, the, um, in the psychological world, in the therapeutic world, that, that a lot of therapeutic interventions go much better if mindfulness is an added feature, which I think is very encouraging because I think that for many of us, and myself included, I'm not a scientist by any stretch, but when science verifies something as being true or good or useful, I think most of us are a little bit more open-minded. I think the science side of mindfulness is really, um, you know, for many, many years these, you know, these these retreats are all full now. You know, I used to sit retreats at IMS in the '90s, and they were like maybe half full. Now, if you want to go to sit at IMS, good luck. You get on like a waiting list of like 125 people. So, uh, mindfulness is um, really—it's not the end. It's kind of really the beginning of the story. Mindfulness puts us on a level playing field, maybe, where we really can kind of make changes to our experience and we can really So it's not the end of the story, it's not you know it's not mindfulness for the sake of mindfulness, it's what we use and how we can use the mindfulness to navigate moment to moment experience, to navigate and to look at our life in the whole picture. And and the one thing that's really encouraging that I like is the The evidence around, you know, having a daily practice is good, but if you look at the book like Altered Traits by Richard Davidson and Daniel Goleman, a lot of these people, that these these multi-day silent retreats is like a massive systems upgrade. Because, I mean, like most of us, you guys have probably already meditated more today than you did last week, (laughs) right? You know what I mean? So, like at a seven-day retreat, you guys are going to meditate more in seven days than probably most meditators do in an entire year. <laughs> right? This is why I always say, don't squander it. You know, and, and 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 understand that there will be unpleasantness, there will be discomfort, there will be confusion, there will be doubt. You'll get all of that, but don't forget what happens is we, we 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 become very identified with that. I don't know why that is. We get identified with the bad things. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't come. This is too hard. I'm just sitting in the hall. Where else could I have gone? And once the doubt gets in, whew, and that's, that's to me the most destructive hindrance of all because that is the one hindrance that will actually get you to Get in your car and drive away. I used to have friends drop me off at retreat. I'm like, I need someone to drop me off because if I have a car, I'm not going to make it through the first two days. Right? That's one thing that's good about Viacitos. It's not that easy to get out of here. You know, like Spirit Rock, you can cruise down to the Starbucks if things get weird, but Viacitos, you have nowhere to go. That's why I like this place so much. It's like you're really here, and I think there's a lot of value in that. I mean, if we were in downtown Albuquerque or Denver or somewhere, it'd be like really hard to not just pop over to the local whatever. So we've really, the conditions here are very conducive and very appropriate and very well designed for us to be able to do this kind of work. And so when we, we, think, when we think about the mind, we wanna realize that it's the ultimately, just, it's a massive neighborhood. Mm. It's a huge city. And we have the neighborhoods of the body, of the feelings, the mind states, the frames. So we want to make sure that we kind of continue to let that heart, mind, that chitta. We, we want it to be big, we want it to be abundant, we want it to be expansive. We don't want it to be tight and to be small and to be little, right? And so, so everything that you're doing here is contributing to that, even taking a walk and looking around, you know? And, and, and if nothing else, Even if this whole week is total hell and you suffer the whole time, your nervous system will be grateful. It's really hard for your nervous system to get dysregulated in a space like this. Like, you really got to work yourself up. It can be done. So it's just a matter of, and and again, I I think this is where I land, is that, again, with with this Dharma work, is that I think we are being encouraged And I think we're being asked to trust a process and to trust something that we'll probably never fully understand. And if we have to understand it to trust it, that's not a good position for us to be in.